Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. I'm Teresa. And we are back with another bonus episode. We're watching Midnight Mass on Netflix, and we are on episode two. Yay, bonus episodes. <laughs> episode two of bonus episodes, episode two of Midnight Mass. Dang. All of the all of the number two things. Plurality there. Indeed, indeed. I'm so excited that we are watching through this television series because It was definitely one of my favorite pandemic watches, and also, like I was mentioning to you while we were watching this, I didn't actually get to, like, focus on the show, like, the visuals of Uh the show. I got to listen to it more than I got to see it. So it's really a treat to go back through watching it, knowing now what I didn't know then, and actually being able to closely focus on the show. It's like chef's kiss. (laughs) I know I keep saying chef's kiss, but... It's chef's it kiss. It is chef's <laughs> kiss. <laughs> yeah, so this episode is called Psalms. Yes, named for another book of the Bible. The episodes are titled, like, Book 1, Genesis, which is actually the literal, like, book yeah. 1 of the Bible. But then episode 2 is called Book 2, Psalms, which is Psalms not book is, 2. <laughs> no, Psalms is definitely not the second <laughs> book of the Bible. It's, like, the... I want to say 15th, but I think I'm completely making that up. Uh, You know, at one point, I had to have all of that memorized. All the books in the Bible or all the Psalms? All the books in the Bible. Like, hashtag Catholic school. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. That sounds like fun. Uh, It was something, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But now you've filled that... uh information or you've erased that memory with other useless information right yes okay exactly right exactly you're like well i had to learn how to drive so i forgot all of the books in the bible right. <laughs> right. i only know that the first one is genesis and the last one's revelations that's all i know i mean that's that's a good start yeah so like I don't have a Catholic upbringing. My dad was very hardcore Southern Baptist, and my mom's kind of like non-denominational, generally Christian, probably, maybe, never went to church with her, so I have no idea. I have only been inside of a Catholic church like a handful of times. Did not burst into flame. Yay! Contrary to popular (laughs) belief, I'm sure. Um, Two of those times was like for weddings, so, you know. But uh, I do like to recreationally visit them when oh, I'm yeah. in like I big cities. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. When I'm in big cities, I'm like, is that a big Catholic church? Let's go. Well, especially because mostly in big cities, you're gonna get the cathedrals, which are the biggest and the prettiest and the fanciest ones, typically. Yeah, and sometimes you can wander in, and they'll be doing choir practice yeah. or something, which is kind of cool. So I don't know. I'm I'm like kind of obsessed with going to big Catholic churches, although. As a person who is 100% not Catholic, and I don't believe in most of the tenets of the Catholic Church and, like, just not Catholic in general, I definitely can get behind a lot of the, like, pageantry of Catholicism. Oh, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a big part of it, honestly, is, like, the ritual and the pageantry and all of that. And, like, that's one of the biggest criticisms from, like, other flavors of Christianity is, like, the -the over-the-top pageantry. But it's what I think resonates with a lot of people, too. Or or what people can still lock into. Um, And it's it's a very common experience. I was actually talking to my mom about this a little bit over the weekend because I was telling her about us watching this show. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about how in other sort of, like, non-denominational versions of Christianity – Every church you go, the service is going to be very different, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on which version and who the preacher is and what the sort of culture of the church is. And certainly culturally, Catholic churches are all different depending on where they are and, you know, what the place is like, what the people that are like are attending it. But the ritual is literally always the same. Mm -hmm. Always, always, always. And when it was in Latin, it was really always the same. Now you've got variations of language, but it's like Catholics around the world are doing like the same thing in service everywhere. And that's kind of one of like the interesting things about it. There's a lot of like 
problematic things about it when it comes to like colonization and Mm -hmm. all of that. I mean, the Catholic church was not just complicit, but was like actively involved in colonization. Mm -hmm. But it is very interesting that the rituals are just like absolutely the same, no matter where you go. Well, it's kind of like McDonald's. Um, (laughs) I know, (laughs) I know that that's probably like a really off the cuff thing to say, but you know, the reason why I say that is because McDonald's is the same everywhere because it's very much easier to control your end product. Yeah. If it's absolutely. always the same. Yeah. So yeah. if you cook your French fries and you fry your hamburgers and, you know, you serve everything with the exactly the same ingredients all the time everywhere, you're going to get the same result. And it's the same with the Catholic Church. It's like, yeah. what better way to control the end result and control? <sighs> totally. Although... I don't know. Is it common for, like, in this uh, show, Father Paul kind of ad-libs sometimes and, like, has his own little, like, I don't know what that's called, but, like, where he kind of goes off on a tangent on his own, like, the sermon. Is that something that's common in Catholic churches to have, like, a little kind of ad-lib sermon or, like, this is the chapter we're going to talk, or this verse we're going to talk about or whatever? It's called a homily. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, what we would think of as a sermon is called a homily within the context of the Catholic mass. And it's always based on the readings in the gospel for that day. Okay. But it's, you know, there are common talking points, you know, because certain, certain like Old Testament and New Testament readings go together with certain gospels and Psalms, like all the pieces kind of fit together Mm -hmm. in a way that is simultaneously chronological in some respects like you're getting the story of the bible the whole year or at Mm -hmm. least the story of jesus and his followers the whole year but there's also theming around like what the message is Mm -hmm. of that story and so while the themes of a homily will be very similar like oh my gosh i can tell you like growing up going to catholic school where we had mass like During the week, in addition to, you know, you were expected to attend church on the weekends, who your priest was depended on how interesting that sermon was. And if if you had a not great priest whose skill set was not good homilies, it would be very boring, very uninteresting. But if you had somebody who was very good, who was a good speaker and more insightful, they were very interesting and they were also like more... I guess more relatable for even people who weren't like hardcore Catholic, like the best priests were always the ones who could really take something and contextualize it and make it like relevant to like a young person living in modern times. Mm -hmm. And it's more about like how to be a good person in the world rather than like how to follow these rules, that kind of a thing. But it totally depends on like who the person is saying the thing because they write their own, their own things. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, Father Paul definitely seems like the type of person where, like, you could probably, like, even if you're not Catholic or you're non-practicing Catholic, you could, like, follow what he's saying. Yeah. And, like, yeah. what he's saying is relatable and important. And that is one thing. So Hamish Linklater, who plays Father Paul, is, like, an insanely good actor. Oh, yeah. And he's also a really good priest, which is super weird because it's, like... <laughs> I'm not even Catholic, and I'm like, okay, I got it. Like, I'm down. The cool thing, though, is that, like, he seems like a relatable priest, but also he gets onto each person's level in a way that they can relate to, and he's also not, like, really pushy. Yeah. And kind of piggybacking off of what we said last time about how he was telling Riley, you know, Jesus did his best work with people who were not in his good graces or were not, like, particularly godly or holy or good people in general. He's like, oh, I wouldn't really have a job if everybody was like that. He, like, practices what he preaches. Mm -hmm. So... On this episode of We Discuss Catholicism. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> that kidding. Is like totally the show. I have a colleague who also grew up Catholic and went to another Catholic school in the area. Um, so our experiences are very similar. She was telling me she watched the show too. And we were, we were like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's like half leading to being a horror story and half like, let's relive our childhoods. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I, I didn't have the Catholic experience, but it's a little different too, because this is a, like a teeny tiny town. So absolutely they're like, it's not even big enough to have a Catholic school. Like their church is like one big room. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you definitely get the sense that while money is being spent there, like, and people I'm sure are tithing because it seems like the people on this Island are fairly faithful Uh um, to like the Catholic church. Like, yeah not to any other church. There's no other churches. Yeah, that's like the only option. Yeah, they're like faithful to the church. But like Father Paul has like nice vestments. And I get the sense, I don't know what you would call her, but like Bev Keen's kind of like his second in command. Yeah, she, Um, I was trying to think of what they would call her. I mean, the technical term would be she's a lay minister. So mm-hmm. a lay person is a person who is not clergy, mm-hmm. but who works within the church. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she she's like the equivalent of she's basically fulfilling the role of a deacon, mm-hmm. even though women can't be deacons. Right. And deacons are ordained, but in a way that is not like a deacon could have a family. You know, oh, okay. like a deacon could be a man with a wife and children, but he could also serve in this religious role. Okay. She's obviously not that. And I mean, there's no indication that she is a, a sister, a religious sister mm-hmm. at all, but she's like a, a lay minister is what we'd call her. Okay. But she's doing all the roles of a deacon. Okay. Maybe like they can change the rules a little bit. That would be nice. In time, not necessarily like change the rules, but they're like, oh, well, we recognize that there are situations where, you know, maybe there aren't enough people or enough money or like we can't afford to send another uh, ordained person out here for you. Yes. And typically in smaller parish communities like this, Mm you do see women especially stepping into those roles. And, like, that's kind of a contentious point because just, like, give them the title. Yeah. You know, like, that's, like, a big thing with me. Like, just give them the title. They're doing all the work anyway. But mm-hmm. you often see in these smaller parishes and communities, a woman may be the only person available to fulfill that role. So she is doing that work. Okay. Speaking of Bev. Um... Oh, Bev. <laughs> So Bev Keen, probably the least likable person in this whole community. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, for so many reasons, too. Honestly, like, she's even less likable than Joe. Joe, who is an alcoholic, who has done something really bad, and we can kind of suss out at this point, like, he hurt uh, Lisa and yeah. caused her to be in a wheelchair. Even he is, like, more likable. <laughs> the evil villain on the island is more likable than Bev Keen. <laughs> well, the thing about it is... Like, we never see her humanity. Mm-hmm. She always has this almost, like, mask on or this, like, veneer of perceived perfection and rule following and all of this stuff. Whereas even somebody like Joe in this episode, we see so much of his humanity coming through. Like, this is a person who's done something horrible and is very aware of that and has flaws and is aware of those flaws and we get to see like both sides of him like it's it's actually really nice to see a character i I give this show props for a lot of characters like this like a character who is an addict being portrayed very compassionately Mm -hmm. that goes with joe that goes with riley as well to see somebody who's in recovery who's a returned citizen portrayed as a whole person yeah is really refreshing Totally. Or somebody who's still in the throes of being addicted. Yeah. Like somebody who hasn't quite made it to Riley's point where, you know, he hasn't had a drink in in this episode, he says, four years. Joe, who still is actively in the throes of addiction, but he's just, he's portrayed compassionately. He's portrayed as somebody who has regret, but he lives maybe to his own, you know, he kind of wallows in in the regret. Yeah. Now, granted, in such a small town, like, what opportunities for redemption would you even have? Exactly, yeah. Could you get the forgiveness of somebody? Especially, probably not, especially if you're continuing to drink and you're not helping yourself out of the same situation that caused this young girl to be paralyzed from the waist down. So, Bev Keen. I want to say that she's one of the most interesting characters in the show, but she's somebody that frustrates me because it feels like she talks in riddles all the time. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Like, you'll never hear her just out and out say, here is the thing. She has to make, like, parables and, like, draw on somebody's memories of somebody else. Yeah. There's a part where she's talking to Aaron about... Um, she's like in the supply closet getting down some poison and ostensibly you can, you know, you can draw, connect the dots later on in the episode. Bev poisoned Joe's dog. Yeah. Like this episode, if you are particularly moved or upset by animal deaths. Yeah. <laughs> steal yourself. Yeah. Get ready. Cause whew. Yeah. Like a bunch of stray cats. Okay. Well, that's one thing. Yeah. You know, stray cats are one thing. These were feral cats from a different part of the island. And they were kind of like dead in mass, like, you know, like all over the beach. It was almost to absurdity. But Pike, Joe's dog, who faithfully waited for Joe to get out of prison yeah. in the first episode or get out of jail. I mean, in the first episode, who seemed to be a sweetheart, a big, huge, like bull mastiff type dog. And then you see two feet and a skirt kind of like quickly go off screen and set down a hot dog in front of Pike. And then, you know, not a couple of minutes later, you see uh, Pike in the last throes of being poisoned, which when I first saw that, like knowing that Joe was a bad guy and like knowing that he's kind of like the, the heel or like the guy that everybody blames stuff on, or like he walks into town and everybody's like, Oh, it's that guy. Yeah. You know, seeing the range of this actor to be able to like, really show grief. Yeah. Especially we're talking like episode two. Yeah. We're not even really that deep into the show and already we're there but Bev Keen just like she talks in riddles all the time and the way that she talks to the sheriff is like not technically condescending. It's so passive aggressive though. If you listen to what she's saying, you're like, oh, it sounds perfectly normal and totally polite. But if you look at her face, yeah. It doesn't match what she's saying, and it's just like props to that actress. Uh-huh. Oh my god. <laughs> It's intense. It's super intense. And so at this point, I mean, you've watched it before, so you know, but I don't know what the supernatural thing is yet. And I'm starting to have some theories. On the one hand, it would be easy to say, oh, Bev Keen is some kind of like pod person or something who doesn't know how to show emotions. But I'm like, no, I think she's just like a seriously demented human being. Yeah. It's amazing how... Mike Flanagan can portray somebody who, like, on paper is a really terrible piece of crap as somebody who's, like, deserving of, you know, forgiveness and a second chance. And then somebody who's, like, amazing on paper as being, like, a complete piece of, like, an actual, yeah, like, yeah, terrible exactly. human being. It's like, oh, well, she raised money for this new rec center. And Riley's talking with um, Father Paul later on. Like, Father Paul starts up, you know, his his single AA, his lonely AA <laughs> chapter, so that Riley doesn't have to go to the mainland every every weekend, I guess, or it's one day a week. Yeah, it's like Saturdays yeah. or something. But he's talking about this rec center, and he's like, "Yeah, she convinced everybody to take the settlement, and then to cut her a piece of it, and then oh, she had to build this rec center." It's like, yeah nobody is using this rec center. Yeah. Like, who's in the rec center? Only the two of them. And the interesting thing about it is, I feel like with a character like Bev, it's less about the money itself, and it's more about, like, I got this rec center built for my community. Look at what I did, because I'm a good person. Like, it's not even about greed. It's about this, like, weird, prideful need to be like, I am good. <laughs> see me be good like a self-righteousness totally yeah and remember in the first episode too she brags about it when they're talking about what they're gonna do for the storm um yeah the sheriff the sheriff is like yeah we'll just come to the school like you know whatever and she's like no no we go to the rec center now (laughs) (laughs) to my rec center yeah exactly subtext there and it's named after monsignor pruitt so it's also like just that extra like dig yeah well, I built this rec center and I named it after Monsignor Pruitt. Yeah. Like, cool. slow clap for yeah, you. great. Good. <laughs> Good job, I guess. 
So what did you think about the episode being called Psalms? How did you feel about that? That was really interesting. You know, obviously, one of the final scenes with the psalm itself was really interesting. I have a lot to say about that scene in general uh, when we get to it. But so much of the psalms are about symbolism. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the psalms were likely sung, and they are sung typically in a Catholic service. That was one of my little critiques, is actually they didn't sing it, and they didn't do the response, which you're supposed to do. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) It's called a responsorial psalm because there's a response element where a cantor intones and then the congregation responds with part of the psalm. Um, And they didn't do it that way. They just had Bev read the whole thing. Okay. But I think they did that for dramatic effect. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that one thing. It's yeah, like, that yeah. one thing. That one thing. <laughs> of all the of all the super like frighteningly accurate things, that was the one <laughs> inaccurate thing. But yeah, so the Psalms were thought to have been sung and they're definitely one of the more poetic books of the Bible. They're actually very beautiful if you read them as poetry, as literature. And they contain a lot, a lot of symbolism. And you could see a lot of that symbolism at work. Uh, A lot of them deal with ideas of mercy and salvation and sort of, in a poetic sense, like longing for salvation. Um, There's another book in the Bible that's more love songs, like poetic love songs, which there's a lot of debate. Like people are like, oh, but it's love songs to God. And it's like, is it though? But <laughs> anywho, um, but the Psalms are more about longing and a lot of ideas of forgiveness and redemption and all of that, which we see in all of the characters kind of at play in different aspects uh, mm-hmm. throughout the whole episode. So it's a super appropriate title. Okay, cool. I don't know that much about it. So I was like, I'll have Juliet talk about this. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the way that you're talking about forgiveness, like you can see that Riley's dad is like starting to break down a little bit and like let his son back in kind of into the fold because he had really, he was being really hard hearted towards him in the first episode. And like another beautiful portrayal of somebody who can be conflicted in a very realistic way. Yeah, absolutely. Like Riley's dad had trouble accepting his son back after he killed somebody in a drunk driving accident and then has to come home after four years like very realistic yeah very very realistic i love you but i can't stand you right now right yeah yeah and like that's a real thing you know like you can have both feelings for someone yeah so like that forgiveness it was nice. And then you can also see instances where people could not forgive. Like yeah. when Lisa runs into Joe and like as they're, as she and Father Paul are kind of like walking through the town, um, you she like runs into him and Joe kind of like turns tail and like runs. Yeah. He's like, I'm out. And Father Paul's like, what's going on? And Lisa's like, nothing and just keeps going. Yeah. So definitely an instance where at least we can perceive that she does not forgive Joe and that she and pretty much everybody else on the island are still really hard towards him. Yeah. But yeah, like just very relatable characters all the way around. Totally. Yeah. One thing I thought was really great too is that we get to see Riley's sort of ongoing journey of trying to forgive himself. Mm-hmm. And the AA scene he had with Father Paul was really, really interesting because... Like, how often in a TV show do you get such a frank discussion of recovery and Mm. addiction? Like, that was really remarkable. Just, like, the language around it was so wonderful because while he was speaking in metaphors, it was very easy to understand and it wasn't coded. Like, I feel like so often in media, when addiction is discussed, it's very, very coded to be very palatable to uh, sort of a mass audience and to, I don't want to say downplay addiction, but to to make it a more comfortable topic, mm-hmm. I think, to sort of make it like addiction is super bad, but we're going to, you know, talk about it in a very comfortable, palatable way. And just the way he talked about it was... Um, 
it was just very refreshing. You don't often hear characters in a TV show, you know, just have like a, a super honest conversation about like, here's what this felt like to me. And I was super aware and hey, I killed someone and I'm grappling with that. Like, yeah. I just love honest language like that. Yeah. And to see the two of them, like, especially two men talk about like yeah. the way that they feel and like feeling emotions and feeling grief for who you were and what you've done, but also still grieving, like, the actions that you can't take back. Yeah. That was something that I thought was a really, like, uh, it's a through line in the whole show, but this episode in particular was very heavy on that. Yeah, like totally. Grieving your actions and accepting that the world is going to throw you some crap now. Right, right. But you don't get a say in it. I thought Joe kind of did the same thing when he told the sheriff, like, don't even worry about investigating my dog. Like, the way that everybody treats me here, like, don't even worry about it. And, like, you could tell that Joe was very upset about his dog. Yeah. But he also knows he does not expect justice and he does not think that he deserves justice for his dog. And also, like, how would you prove it? Right, right. Like, if there's rat poison all over the island, like, he, it could have come from anywhere. So there would be no proving it. Yeah. I thought it was really cool, though. Like, I love his relationship with uh, the sheriff. Mm-hmm. And I love that the sheriff was just like, let me be clear. I believe you. I'm not blowing you off as the town drunk. Like, I believe you. But I'm going to be honest, there's not a lot I can do. Yeah. And that was a very human moment, too. And you could tell it gained the sheriff a ton of points with Joe. Like, yeah. Joe said, thank you. And it seemed like he meant it. He wasn't being sarcastic. Because that character is kind of, like, known for being, like, drunk and sarcastic yeah. all the time. Yeah. But he didn't seem... It seems like they have a special relationship. I thought even in the first episode, where, like, more so than many other people on the island, Sheriff Hassan can talk to Joe yes. in a way that he, like what you were saying about coding, Sheriff Hassan has to code yes, a certain way absolutely. as the sheriff, as a Muslim man on an island of Catholics, like he has to code his language in a certain way to be palatable to the rest of the island. Yeah. He doesn't have to do that for Joe. Yeah. It's a really interesting dichotomy because like, Joe's kind of the black sheep of the island, Mm -hmm. but yet he is the one guy that Sheriff Hassan can be like, this is who I really am. This is what I really think with you and everybody else. Like, he has to code to them. Yeah, and their relationship seems to have, like, a really nice foundation of compassion where Joe seems to recognize, like, as an outsider that the sheriff, although he's in an authority role, is an outsider in this community Mm -hmm. and he affords him that compassion. And likewise, the sheriff recognizes that Joe is not the sum of his addiction, that Mm -hmm. he's a person and he deserves compassion too. So it's a cool, I don't even know if it's a friendship, but there's just a a mutual respect there. Mm -hmm. It's really nice. Sheriff Hassan is definitely an outsider, and nobody ever lets him forget it. Right. Like, there's so many times where even even if they're pretending to be nice, or maybe they think truly they're being nice, like the mayor. There was a conversation with the mayor that Sheriff Hassan has at the beginning where Sheriff Hassan is like, hey, we got to clean up all these cats. I'm going to burn them because it could be poison. It could be a parasite, something like that. And then the mayor just talks his ear off. And he's trying to be helpful and trying to, like, kind of fill the sheriff in. But he's also being, like, passively condescending. Totally. And just like, well, you wouldn't know this because you weren't here. Uh, You don't know this because this is your first time. Oh, well, we can't rile up the people. Like, maybe let's not do this. That kind of thing. And just undermining his authority at, like, every step. And then he's like, and oh, by the way, you would get more trust. And it's so passive aggressive. Like, look. I know you're Muslim and I know that you go to the mainland to mosque, but it would be really great to build trust with people by coming to mass. Like, just don't. Like a waste of a Sunday for, you know, because who knows when this guy even has off? Like, is he sheriff 24-7? Well, here's what I want to know. Hey, mayor, 
when are you going to go to mosque with Sheriff Hassan? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, like, oh, sorry, the people on this island are too small-minded to be able to accept you for being a Muslim person. So can you come pretend to be Catholic yeah. for a day? Like, just or, show up. It's or cool. every week? Yeah. You don't have to take, you know, you don't have to sign up. What did he say? You don't have to get a sign up for a membership. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, you understand, though, that, like, the God in Muslim religion... And the God and the Catholic religion are the same God, right? Yeah, it's like, like it's the same. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah, like it's okay. It's yeah. okay for somebody to worship differently than you. But yeah, like Sheriff Hassan is in a tough spot, and nobody ever lets him forget that he is an outsider. He's not like them. He's yeah. different than them. He worships differently, and they're like so wrapped up in this whole church thing. It's nuts. But. Now we have Father Paul, who's kind of like this enigmatic leader, you know, like new blood, but also like he's talking to them about things that they understand, things that resonate with them. Even Aaron, who is kind of admittedly like the lost lamb, like she's kind of lost her way. She's come back pregnant. She's now living and breathing inside of her mom's old house and like desperately trying not to be her mom who has passed away. But even she was brought to tears by his Ash Wednesday service. So, yeah, yeah it, it seems like he's a powerful, he's a, he's a powerful, um, fought, like, what do you call that? Priest? Pastor? Priest. Well, I don't know uh, why he, I'm struggling with He this. would be both in okay. this case. Yeah, he would be, yeah. <laughs> he's one in the same. I'm, I'm like, he's a powerful, fa- no, that's not what you call him. <laughs> He's a very powerful priest in that he is both a religious leader in this community, but he's also very persuasive. Yeah. Because I would say, like, he is speaking in a way that is relatable, but also it's very persuasive. Which makes me suspicious. I'm a little suspicious. That's all I'm saying. Well, he was wearing the wrong robes in the first episode. <laughs> in that first, he did wear the the correct robes for uh, Ash Wednesday. Well, thank goodness. Yeah, purple is the right color for Ash Wednesday. <laughs> well, thank goodness we could not let him slide if, yeah, he, would, no, if he was no. wearing anything else for Ash Wednesday. Can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, kind of bringing it back to Sheriff Hassan, something that we kind of talk about semi frequently is community. Uh huh. Yeah. Being a part of a community that you choose versus being a part of a community that you don't get to choose. Yep. And Sheriff Hassan is a perfect example of what happens when you don't get to choose the community that you're in. And you're just trying to make the best of it. But you don't get to pick. Right. Right. And so you kind of have to... You have to deal with it. In his case, he has got to drag his kid along with him. Yep. And he just has to suck it up. And one would actually say that Riley and Aaron to a certain degree are also in the same condition. Riley certainly does not seem to have had a choice coming out of prison. He, it appears, you know, had nowhere else to go and had no options. He's on parole right now. So usually a condition of parole is pretty prescribed. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he had to make a choice of where he was going to be and has to be accountable to that. And it seems like for him, his best slash only option was coming home to this place where he grew up to a community that would not necessarily be one he would choose. And he's trying to make the best of it. We see by the end of the episode, he's trying to engage with his father and says, let me come out on the boat with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely the two of them too, like they have a little bit more to lean on. Absolutely. Because they have history there. They have one another. You can tell that Aaron and Riley have history and they, I mean, they have present too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like maybe they don't really know where they stand with the other, but like they feel comfortable with one another. They're both like the sinners who have returned, you know, as where like Sheriff Hassan is kind of out by himself. Like he doesn't have a lot to draw on. He's got his son, which like great, you know, it's good that you have at least one person with you. Yeah. But his son has friends. Yeah. Like, as we see at the crock, crock pot luck. <laughs> Is that name? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so clever that he's like, I'm going to dip out and just go be with my friends. And his dad's like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, definitely do that. Too. <laughs> 
Um, so to kind of skip to a different part of the crockpot luck, what did you think about Dr. Sarah being queer? Well, actually, I wanted to talk about that a little bit in terms of community. First of all, yay for queer representation in TV. Yay. Yay. You know, when we think about Dr. Sarah, that's a really interesting, she's got a really interesting view of community of choice versus, you know, community of circumstance. She has made the choice to stay on the island because her mother is in sort of the late stages of dementia and will probably be dying soon. And she says, you know, as a very conscious choice, I don't want my mother to die somewhere unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. And yet she is also yearning to be with a woman who she started dating. She says to this person, like, no, I want to go live on the mainland. But right now, you know, this choice is the choice that I had to make and I have to sort of live with it. It's just a really interesting circumstance because she is trapped in a certain way, but it is of her choosing. Mm -hmm. And she's needed very much in the community. Absolutely, She's like the only doctor or like, I think she's a doctor. She could be a nurse practitioner, like physician's assistant, who knows. I'm pretty sure she's a doctor, but she's like the only thing even close to a medical professional on this entire island. And like in times of crisis and need, she's the only person that so many of them have to go to. And yet she's also caretaking for her mother who needs almost constant care. But it looks like her office is attached to her house. So she's like able to practice out of her home, which is kind of nice. Mike Flanagan does a really good job of making sure that there is queer representation in his, like, not just, you know, oh, gay best friend, yeah, which was like a trope for a while. Oh, totally. But like, you know, legitimate and meaningful queer representation, which is especially important when it's something like Midnight Mass, which is not necessarily like a show that says out loud it's a queer friendly show. Right. Or that yeah. there's a queer character. It's something that is like relevant or interesting. I think it was number one on Netflix for like, I think it was for like months. So he always does a really good job of like making sure that there's like tangible representation in his um, television shows. So yeah, it's also good. I don't think we talked about this last time, but the fact that we see on a small fishing Island, it would be very, very easy to make the characters all white Uh and to like, seemingly get away with that to be like well it's a small fishing island look there's a lot of white people i don't know (laughs) but to have characters of color who have deep roots in the community interracial couples and save for the sheriff whose difference is important as part of the story to have um, black characters especially seamlessly integrated in the community and it's not like oh, that's the black character, um, is really great to see, too, to just see, here is a community of people. Some of them are white. Some of them are not white. (laughs) And it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, and it's not, like, the big plot device. Right, right. Oh, well, we have to make sure that we talk about it with a capital T. Yes. It's like, nope, these are just folks that live in this neighborhood, and everybody's, Yeah. She's the mayor's wife, and they got a kid, and it's cool. Like, Lisa's pretty cool, and yeah, no, nobody cares. Like, yeah. Which, it would be very easy to both make them all white or to make people racist. And it does not yes. seem as though people are racist in this. I mean, I guess passively they are racist, but they're more, like, religious, like, religiously yeah. discriminating yeah. against Sheriff Hassan versus, like, outright discriminating although it is religious discrimination so it is and they're also just very um insular yeah you know it would certainly be perhaps interesting to see how they would respond to or treat a black person from outside of their community like if someone if a black family from the mainland came to settle on the island would they be received with the same open arms as somebody with deep roots in the community? That's a really good question. But, you know, 
based on what we see, it is nice to see um, that it's not all white people. Yeah. So to go back a little bit to the scene where Riley is... uh, So the parishioners on the island are receiving sacrament. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, Riley is at an AA meeting and he's watching somebody else get their coin. Yeah. That scene really struck me as something where, like, Riley is caught in between two worlds where he doesn't quite qualify for his coin at AA yet because he hasn't hit the next big milestone. I'm not sure if they do. I think once you get to a year, they celebrate in years. So you get, like, your coin after. Yeah. So, like, he's got four years. He wouldn't get his coin again until five. But he does not feel like it's appropriate for him to get sacrament in church. But he also does not feel connected to AA and like he can get, you know, quote unquote sacrament from AA either. So he's caught between not be not being able to get, is it called absolution when you like, when you're absolved of your sins? Yeah, that would be after confession. Okay. But he can't, he cannot like express that part of himself. Like he cannot be forgiven for his sins through his church because he's no longer a practicing part of it. But he also can't get rid of that through AA because he cannot accept that there's a higher power. So that makes it impossible for him to engage in AA or in church. Yeah, well, and and I think in addition to absolution, so we see him over and over again not participating in communion. And the Mm -hmm. whole concept of communion is, you know, community and being... One with God and one with your community in this shared ritualistic symbolic feast. And likewise, you know, the whole, I'm not by any means an expert on AA, but the whole concept of AA is about a community of recovery and Mm -hmm. and community accountability and that you are not alone in your recovery. And he can't like lock in with that either. Right. So it goes back to that community thing. Yeah. And he's kind of, like, in the center of the Venn diagram of, like, can't go to church. Right. Can't participate off, you know, in AA. So I'm stuck on yeah. an island. <laughs> yeah. Literally and figuratively. Um, which, maybe that's some some uh, theming there. Oh, yeah. I think so. <laughs> Being stuck <laughs> on an island. Yeah. Also, I wanted to go back to this. And I think this might tie into something that you wanted to talk about. What... Uh, Father Paul says, suffering can be a gift. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I mean, like, at its, like, if you just read that off the page, it's like, uh, okay. Like, I don't think so. Yeah, I Um, don't think so either. But the way that he was referencing that, like, statement, suffering can be a gift, is that he's thinking, like, okay, yes, people have suffered. But, like, look at Lisa. She has made herself uh, very devout in the face of her adversity. So, like, her suffering is a gift in that it made her double down on, you know, being very devout in her religion. The suffering of Dr. Sarah's mom, like, her mom is clearly suffering. She's battling with dementia or Alzheimer's, very late stages. But Dr. Sarah is able to be there and be with her and kind of guide her through this process into death. Joe, so this is a little bit darker turn, but Joe has been suffering and is currently suffering in a new way. But maybe that gift of him being able to talk to Sheriff Hassan, frankly, about this and both bestow his knowledge of, like, how crappy Bev Keen is to Sheriff Hassan and also know that Sheriff Hassan is there as a more friendly face in town um, could be his gift. Yeah. So, kind of interesting. It's just an interesting thing to think about. It is. And I love that he had that exchange with Riley where Riley kind of pushed back on that and was like, wait, we need to examine this because, you know, that is that is one of the big criticisms of many religious doctrines, which is like, how do you tell people who experience poverty and racism and, you know, hunger? Like, how do you say to a kid that doesn't have enough to eat? Like, oh, your suffering's a gift, you know? Yeah. Um, and I love that Riley, not 
using those words, but really like pushed back on that. Like, okay, right. So you say that, but how does that work? Like, how does that work? And in a compassionate way. Yeah. And I like that they worked through that together and that Father Paul was like, look, yeah, it's not, it's not easy. And I'm not going to tell you that the suffering is necessarily a good thing, but to, in the moment of suffering, to look for the gifts that come out of it. Like you're going to suffer no matter what, which is almost like Buddhist, like all life is suffering, you know? Um, And we find enlightenment you know, by examining our, our suffering and our human condition. And he, also he, you know, amended that by saying, uh, just because God is good and God, you know, is all powerful and all seeing, that doesn't mean that people are not, should not be held accountable for right, their actions. Right. Yeah. And like, yeah, God is out there and sure. Could God solve world hunger? I mean, in this like if you're Catholic, then sure. Yeah. But people are also accountable for their actions and people also have to be accountable for their actions against others and towards themselves. So interesting um, exchange for them. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to talk about one thing at the end. I mean, we've kind of glossed over all the spooky stuff only because it's still emerging. Oh yeah. (laughs) More, more on the spooky stuff soon, Mm -hmm. I think, because right now we're still just getting like Little hints here and there, little flashes of things. Something is lurking in the woods and flying. Toilet peeper. <laughs> yep, toilet peeper, window peeper, woods lurker, flying thing. Oh, and voice emulator. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, like so scary. <laughs> in the uh, abandoned, the creepy condemned house. Condemned house. Yeah. Look, if you're walking by a creepy condemned house and the door just opens, don't go in. Don't call out. <laughs> and if you call out and something replies back in your voice as an exact mimic, run like hell. <laughs> Don't go further in. And if you see a glowing set of eyes, definitely run like hell. But you're probably already dead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The spooky stuff is uh, it's definitely it's coming. Yeah, spooky things are spooky. Um, The one thing I did want to say is at the very, very end, like the final scene, and this is just a really, really subtle thing. And again, just like a really refreshing thing. When Father Paul in the mass scene goes to give Lisa the communion and then backs up to the altar and is trying to get her to stand. I loved the reaction of the congregation. Yeah. Because so often you see in portrayed in media, especially in, you know, kind of your stereotypical revival scenes where, like, everybody is on board with this. Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, get up. Get up and walk. And, like, everybody's down with it. And I love how everyone was just shocked and horrified. And they were like, this is cruel. Like, Mm -hmm. what are you doing? Yeah. This is terrible. How Like, how dare you? So I just really, really loved that. I think it could have very easily... Ben, you know, everyone's like, yeah, get up and walk. It's sure. so inspiring. Um, but I just love that everyone's reaction was like, what are you doing? Like, you're being harmful to this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're definitely all on board. So often you see people treat those that have like physical or mental disabilities as being uncomfortable or like they can't get on their level or they treat them like glass or like... They don't include them normally, but it doesn't seem, it seems more like Lisa isn't allowed to be a part of, like, the normal shenanigans of kids because her parents are really strict. Yeah. (laughs) Because her dad's the mayor, unless, because, like, they're, like, no, you can't invite her. She's the girl in the wheelchair. Right, yeah. And it doesn't seem that way at all for the other, like, the kids her age. Like, they very much want to spend time with her. Oh, yeah, especially Riley's little brother. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, like... It was, the first time I watched it, it was extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. Because, like, everybody is reacting in exactly the way a caring community would. Exactly. And they were like, "Uh, we know that you're new here, but um, you, like, we haven't seen you do any miracles yet. Yeah. And so we'll see, like, we'll see if um, that's how this is perceived, which, I mean, I know, but you can tell that this was something that was mind-blowing to this community. 
Yeah. What I am curious to see, because this is literally the final scene of this episode, like the last moments are Lisa getting up and walking to receive communion, is I want to see how this plays out in that it is so often portrayed in movies and so often our our sort of inherent ableism mm-hmm. is to assume that all people and I'll just I'll just narrow it for a moment because we're talking about this character that all people who use wheelchairs want to be air quotes cured. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really unfair generalization, yeah. you know, um or that all people with any kind of disability that in their heart of hearts, they want to be air quotes normal. And I think that's like super, super ableist. And so I'll be curious to see moving forward from this point, like after the sort of shine of the miracle of it all wears off, is this what Lisa wanted? Yeah. Is this who she wanted to be? Is this, this choice was made for her, obviously, Is it the right choice? And who had the right to make that choice for her? Yeah. I will say, even though that this is the second episode and only the second time I'm watching through it, I would encourage anybody who has already watched through this to watch it again. Because I'm watching it the second time and I'm seeing so many things that were very lovingly placed in earlier episodes that you would not pick up on if you were just watching this the first time. And were meant for you to see the second time. Oh, nice. Like, Mike Flanagan's like, I know you're going to come back. I know you can't <laughs> stay away. They all come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know you can't stay away. So I would definitely say, like, less so in the first episode, but some a little bit in the first episode, but more so in the second episode. So much for you to see that you would not have picked up on before. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Ooh, that's exciting. Okay. Yay. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com, Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and on Twitter at FinalGirlsPod. Our theme music is by House Ghost and available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell your friends about us. I'm Julia. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary.